The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. You know what an expert is? An expert's anybody from out of town with a briefcase. And so when I came to the subject of relational intelligence, I was thinking, okay, I know the train wrecks that I've made in my life. And so I could tell you what maybe not to do in some areas. And so I thought, okay, how can I get Steve down here to talk about his book? Um, we're starting a brand new series for the next six weeks. The conversation is going to be around surrounding uh, our relationships. And, you know, I would almost rather hear something that inspires me, encourages me, that tells me I'm a good person than to focus on relationships at times. But, but here's the other reality is that, that, that really it does define you as a human being. In fact, it doesn't matter if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or you're a spiritual person. Uh, uh, I'm just curious, could this be something for me here? If, if your relationships are shaky, if you have low relational skills, this is what I know from being in corporate environments and other communities, is that you are just not going to move forward. You can be um, educated, you could have your grad degree, you could have... Um, Young, bright, ambitious, but if your relational skills are, are low, you're just not going to move forward. Um, this was, you know, it's, it's been on my horizon for a while. Um, there was a book written by a guy named Tim something. Maybe, Laura, you know, that's the book, um, The Likeability Factor. You know, and, and it's, a, it's one of these books that talk about, really, it seems silly, just being able to create the ability to be liked. Not in a crippling, emotionally needy, clingy, weird way, you know, like mascara running, crying sort of way. And sometimes girls are crying too. Uh, and what I mean is that, uh, and, and just is is um, it's just being able to develop that skill set. Now, the the other reason why this came to my mind is that my a friend of mine who uh, I, I trust, uh, I'm, I'm just I'm just a better thinker and a man around him. We we were discussing the issues of emotional IQ, and he gently but firmly pointed out that there were some blinders I had. And I said, "What do you know, stupid?" And so. Um, so then I, I, I told him that, he said, well, here's a book that has been helpful to me. In fact, this is how he approaches me. Man, I just got, went through this book that's really great. And never telling me that I'm the one that needs it. He'll just say, oh, it was fantastic. I learned so much. You know, it's kind of like just raising the curiosity level. So I read, I go, hey, hey, you were talking about me here, you know. And, and uh, so I, I go through the emotional intelligence book and the guides and, and I came up with a score and I go to see where the score is. I'm assuming it's going to be like, you know, top 1% of the United States. And it was needs help in improvement. And I was shocked. I said, stupid book, what do they know? <laughs> stupid Tim Sanders. Not very long ago, the, uh, there's a group of us at, at Mosaic, different pastors and people who are on paid staff, and, and, and Irwin um, brought us through a, an assessment called the Berkman Method. And uh, so I, I was... I was given a kind of a caution up front that, you know, you're going to want to push back on some of the results on this. You're not going to want to hear this. I thought, well, it's about me. Of course I want to hear it. And um, so he said, well, you know, there's, there's one thing that does your strengths, shows you what your talents are, but this is going to show you maybe some of the things you don't like about yourself. I thought, okay, whatever. There, it's going to be a very short assessment then. And because, um, you know, I love me. <clears throat> one of the first categories is area called self-esteem. And the ratings go from 0 to 99. I scored 2. Now see, some of you are thinking, wow, you really are a train wreck. And so I immediately thought, you know, as there was this, uh, this, the certified consultant who's ex- helping us unwrap what the findings actually mean. 
Because my assumption is, when I told the guy, I don't have a low self-esteem. If anything, I have a problem with arrogance. You know, I don't, this is not my issue. He says, oh, I know, this is what it's measuring. This is not a low self-esteem. This is the kind of score you would get for people who, even when you look for help, you pay someone to teach you consulting. You're in a room with a speaker. You automatically assume you know more than the person speaking or teaching you. And you know what? Without pausing, without even trying to be funny, I said, no, no, I don't. I don't do that. And he goes, and there it is. I thought, dang it. And I thought, man, he's old, but I, I really still want to hit him. <laughs> or at least give him a good shaking, you know? And then, he, and then you know, Irwin kind of says, and, oh, it's going to get worse, bro. And I thought, <laughs> okay. And by the way, the next lowest score was in the 30s. So I, I'm thinking, wow, you know, I, I might have some issues. And um, then he said, and this is also the kind of score that a person has, the, the lower the score, is that you care very little about other people's opinion when you think you're right. So I, I was, uh, you know, and my first reaction was like, no, that's not true. I, I value people. I have empathy. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I don't care. I, don't think about it. <laughs> I actually don't care about you either. And I'm thinking about it. I'm looking at you right now. You know, I went back and looked at my life, you know, the, the beautiful valleys and horizons of my relationships, and it was like a desert, actually. And I recall a moment when I was seven years old. I don't know. I had done something. Who knows? Um, I was such a troubled child, man, my poor parents. But I remember, my, I remember this scene, and my mom was sitting on the bathroom toilet, you know, and just, she wasn't using it. She was just sitting there crying, because um, that would be a very tremendous, crippling, weird moment, you know. Um, but she was sitting there crying, and she was upset about something I did, and, and, and she was, I just wish that you were a small child again, a baby where I could hold you and you know, keep you safe. And, and I remember looking at her saying, I'm not going to let your tears manipulate me. I was seven. I, mean, I don't even know why I understood the word manipulate. I don't know why my mom didn't kill me. And, and then I can remember different, uh, dealing with different boards and corporations and, 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 and disagreeing with them, and, and, and I recall leaving the board meeting saying, you're, you're the board of nothing, I will not meet with you, because I was, there was a chairman in some area. And so I went out, you're nothing to me. And I used to joke, there's some friends that actually, we, sometimes when we get sort of that mock argument, we text YDTM to each other, you're, you're dead to me. I'm not able to do this, I kind of go, YDTM, you're dead to me. And I recall leaving some of these board meetings thinking, um, I'm not changing, I'm right. Now, I can tell you 99% of the time I usually was. I would tell you 100%, but I don't want to brag. <laughs> I don't care about your feelings, apparently. Um, but in, in, in many situations, the, I guess the plus side to this weird self-esteem issue is that when I think I'm right... I hold on to my convictions regardless of people's other opinions. I, I really, that does not, that will not change my opinion if I think I'm right. So I thought about my relationships with my wife, my family, some close friends here at, at church. And, you know, there's just, gosh, there's just moments. The people that you, perhaps you ought to care about or should, you should care about that you ought to wish you had healthy relationship with, that you could just talk with and, and connect to, you don't. Have you noticed? It seems that those folks that are, that are closest to us, the connection and relationship seems to elude us. And that's what makes it more painful because they're, they're physically right there. But, but soul to soul, heart to heart, you might as well be in different countries. 
Um, I recall I, was, I worked for um, AT&T, uh, I think I had like 15 years in, and on a whim, on a Wednesday afternoon, I thought, you know, I really don't want to be here anymore. And I quit. But I hadn't told my wife. Yeah, I know, I think some of you guys are feeling this. So I went home, she goes, hey, what's going on? Um, what's happening? You know what, I left work today. I mean, I know, I know you're home. No, I mean, I left work. I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't know what I want to do. I think I was in my 30s at the time. And my wife was like, oh, okay. Well, it's time to go to church, I guess. And, and then I was really worried she didn't react because I was afraid I was going to wake up with a, you know, a knife in my chest. <laughs> you know, something out of psycho. But no, she didn't. And, and, and it reminded me how often, I, if I make a decision, I'm not even consulting anybody else. And on top of that, some of you who have... Anybody go to Yellow recently or you know what Strength Finders is? Okay, I have Activator. So you you blend. I'm not interested in people's opinions if I think I'm right in Activator. It's like, boom. I make decisions about really consulting people. Which my wife has said, I love the fact that you're very decisive. I just wish you considered all the facts before you make decisions sometimes. During that time, I, I was off work for six months. I lived off the savings that we had and, you know, went surfing a lot with my, um, with my kids and my wife. And it, it was a real wake-up call in my relationships for this one reason. I was out there uh, just floating, waiting for a set to come in with my son. I think he was in junior high school at the time. And I realized, as easy as I find it to talk with people, I had nothing to say to my own son. I didn't know what to say to him. And everything felt weird and awkward. And so we sat out there. Now, he's a good kid, so he wasn't really feeling that awkward moment. You know, he was just having fun, enjoying it. And I was, we were floating out there, I don't know, seven, ten minutes. No words passed. And I recall thinking, I don't want to end up being the father that my son, who was a good kid, he's grown up to be a terrific young man, that he just tolerates his dad. You know, he's civil, he's respectful, but there's no real relationship where we actually enjoy each other's company. And so I began to make intentional changes on how uh, those relationships were being conducted because these are people I cared about. It was my son. I have another son, another daughter, and then my wife. And I began to think about, man, how, many, how much people I just put up with at times. I sent an email out a, few, a couple of years back and asking people, what, what's it like to experience, this is going to sound silly, but I mean, what's it like to be on the other side of me? And at first, there was 10 people I did this with. At first, they were very tentative. Oh, you know, I think you're a good guy here, blah, blah, blah. And I would respond, what I need you to tell me is what I'm not doing well. You know, how am I not, you know, caring for you? How am I not showing, perhaps, the value you have to me? And then the emails came in. And it was like homework, you know. My mailbox got full. It was pages and pages of stuff, you know. And then I realized, I reply all, I don't care about your opinion. No, I, because uh... you know what it was like? It was like hearing your voice on a recording for the first time. You know when you hear your voice and you go, I don't, I don't sound like that. Am I really that nasally? Do I really sound that, you know, squeaky voice and, ugh, you know, and you realize, no, that's exactly what you sound like. And everyone says, yeah, that's you. <laughs> or those, you know, ever, uh, ever get those photographs? <clears throat> By the way, how many of you are willing to admit this? You guys practice your smile for photographs? No? Am I the only vain, crippled person here? <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Um, <laughs> You know, you, 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 sometimes you get that photograph and you go, wow, I really look good in that photograph. So you try to hit that mark every single time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but then someone, takes, someone Facebooks you in a photo that you didn't approve before they published. <laughs> oh, dude, I don't look like that. That's an ugly photo of me. 
And it's, it's, it's surprising how deceiving those words are because the camera wasn't like distorting, right? That is you. It's just not from the angle that you prefer to be seen from, right? And this is what I discovered from those emails and maybe our self-perception is that we have an image of what we think we're doing for other people and how, and how we are, you know, like, I don't think there's many of you that would think you're relationally crippled or damaged. Some of you might, but most of you probably think, oh, it's somebody else. But if, you, if you're honest, and this is where we're going to have to go with this conversation, if you're honest with yourself, if you look back at your friendships and relationships, if they tend to have a nine-month to two-year expiration date, and then you're on to somebody else, or it, it, this doesn't continue, there's probably something wrong with you. If that's a consistent pattern in your life, there's something to take a look at in your relationships with yourself. And since we are a spiritual community, of course, you know, our, our guideline, our model is Christ himself who seemed not surprising, but seemed to be the guy that knew what to say, understood the question behind the question, gave what people needed at the right time they needed it, even if it was space. This is why relational intelligence is important. Even if you do not consider yourself a follower of Christ, not only are you still welcome here, but understand this, that you will not achieve your full potential as a human being without a strong relational skill set. You can, you can have your undergrad, your grad degree, you could be young, bright, ambitious, hardworking, high responsibility, focused, but if you have low relational skills, you are just not to go as far as you could with them, period, period. It's just how the, how the universe and how life works. And so rather than looking at how other people have perhaps let you down and been damaging to you, what we're going to do is start from the inside and moving out. And um, it is rare when somebody has high relational skills and knows exactly how to value people and in and, and, and a healthy way. Um, but if we follow the model I think that Jesus is laying out, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and improve our relationships. And this will be probably the biggest benefit or gift from this six-week series. Let's go to John chapter 13, verse 34. This is not an unfamiliar passage to us, especially if you've been in this community. John chapter 13, verse 34. I've told you about this book. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times, right? This is the most unique biography of Jesus that we have. It's unique because of the way that it's designed and set up. You have about 21 chapters. The author tells you at the end of the book what his purpose was writing it to begin with, right? It moves quick. Half the book is three, almost two years of his life. The other half is only one week. And half of that portion of literature is one night, seven, eight hours. Well, this is that night. And um, so, you, you know, you have this moment where, uh, where Jesus is, again, not, not really almost doesn't matter who you think he is, even though that's going to be probably the biggest life question you have to answer. Jesus is aware that his execution is coming. And we're all going to die. But he's aware, I mean, he knows the time. He knows the moments and the events are going to take place. And so with these men that he's cared for, taught, lived with, ate with, cried with, prayed with, he wants to give them one final bit of information before he goes. This is that night. Now, a little bit about rabbis. A rabbi um, would be a, a teacher who in many cases would select students, you know, so it was kind of an honor to be picked. Occasionally, if you have enough money, you could pick your rabbi. Um, 
when Jesus spoke about following me, it wasn't just an invitation to, I mean, there was a literal part of that. Uh, there wasn't a classroom setting, a lecture, so like, like this, this is Greek, this is Western. In a Middle Eastern culture, it would have been more of a walking around sort of peripatetic university. So when Jesus would say, follow me, he literally meant, you know, vamanos, follow me. So take a walk, and he would teach as he walked. And so whenever he spoke, you have to picture him on the, in many cases being outside. So when he saw a bird, he pictured this. When he saw a field and flowers, he would use, he would use life around him to be stories and metaphors to explain spiritual truths. So that ought to be, by the way, for those of us who want to be you know, communicators, that, that ought to be a, a, a hint that to remain maybe biblical is to be creative and not use language that maybe makes sense only to the Middle Easterns in the first century. That, that's just my opinion. So here he is this last night speaking to these guys. And the goal of a student with this rabbi is not just to get the information. It wasn't just to know everything that the rabbi knew. The goal was to become like the rabbi. And so now here you picture these men, small business owners, uh, a couple of them seminary students like probably Andrew was, um, who, are, who are seeing this guy. He talks to storms. They stop. He, he, he actually touches somebody with, who's HIV positive. Oh, I'm sorry, a leper, though we kind of treat him the same way. He touches those people. He gets into their lives. He deals, he has whores and other deformed and other issues. People come to him. He's open with those people. He doesn't have very much patience for anybody that looks together. Right? But everyone that seems the most damaged or the weirdest, he's, he has all the time in the world. When he prays, things happen. And so folks begin to, you know, his students are, are, are they want to become like him. Okay? That is, that's the dynamic. Now here's the last night he's talking to them. Verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And here's the part that I find troubling about this. is that, Quite frankly, there's people I don't even like. Let alone love them. But this isn't some sort of cheap, sentimental feeling that like steam, you know, you, you can feel it and see it, but it really just has no lasting impact. This is an intentional, focused, action-oriented moment where you actually begin to value people above yourself. In fact, this is one of those things where I know that there are a couple of people that I, I, I think I needed even to look them dead in the eye and, and, and say this to them. It's not what you do that matters to me. It's not what you give to this community that matters to me. You're, you as a person, you're the value. To, the, to me. If you never do anything else but breathe air and live, you're still a value to me. And the thing I love about this is that when Christ says, I want you to love each other like I loved you, stop for just a moment and let not this pass too quickly. Especially if you've been in church cultures for a while and, you know, I think, unfortunately, it, it, you know, growing up in a church environment is, is a curse and it could be helpful, but mostly cursed for this one reason. It's like getting a vaccination. You get just enough to never catch the real thing in some cases. And because it becomes so familiar to you, the, 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 really the, the offensiveness of it and the surprise of it eludes you. So let's stop and think for just a moment. How does actually Jesus love you? I'll tell you mine. He, he takes me seriously. I've never had him interrupt one of my prayers and say, I got it. 
I've never had him finish one of my sentences. I never felt he gave me a quick, cheap, pat, cliche religious answer to an issue that really troubled me. I never had him say, um, you know, I felt him like he wanted to hurry me up. And even when I look back in hindsight over some of the discussions I've had with him, I realize they were probably very silly and immature at the time. I never felt him think to me that it was silly or immature, that he actually just took me seriously. And so for me, when I think about this moment, when he says, I want you to love people the way I've loved you. See, each of you are probably experiencing Christ in a very unique way that's very, you know, uh, you know healing to you. What he's asking you to do is to be that wounded healer and, and then heal somebody else with, with your love as well. However you've experienced it. See, for some of you, it's been an encouraging thing. Some, for some of you, it's been a sensing his kindness and forgiveness that's been extremely liberating for you. For some of you, it's been um, just freedom and, and other areas of your life. But whatever that is, you can just start there. But see, here's what it takes. It takes the ability to recognize how God loves you. And here's the funny thing about this, in this relationship, this big one between us and God, that's actually kind of uncomfortable for us to think about. I, um, one of my sons, my oldest one, I remember, um, there was an issue that, you know how you are with, maybe you, when you were a kid and you're a parent now, you, you, you've had your, your mom or dad tell you, please don't do this certain thing, right? And by the way, oh my gosh, my father collected weapons, not always legally, but he had plenty of them, and there was always this thing, stay out of that closet, don't go into my bedroom, I, you know, da 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 Okay, papi, no worries. Man, I was like, a, I was like, you know, it takes a thief cat burglar and black leotards and, you know, fixing it to break in there. I would play with my father's weapons. I would actually be the guy that would click it just to feel that adrenaline, you know. Now, I wouldn't hold it to my head, but I would hold it to my thigh. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I don't know why. Here's the weird part. I wasn't sure that they were loaded or not when I think back at it. I know. Now, they were, they were unloaded, apparently, because, you know, my pierna, my pierna's still here. But uh, actually, it's more like an arm, isn't it? Let's be honest. Good Lord decided to give me four arms, two to use, two to walk on. But um, any rate, I forgot what I told David not to do. I don't know how many times he told this kid not to do this dumb thing that he had done, and he had done it. And it was one of those times where we had to get Senor Cinto involved, you know, Mr. Belt, right? You know, I wasn't going to hit him, but the point is that um, I just thought, you know, I, I just don't want to spank him. And I said, David, you know, you, you know you've done this thing again, right? And he just was just welling up in tears. But it wasn't like fear. It really did seem to be genuine sorrow and regret. And, and so I remember uh, just holding him for a second. Dude, I forgive you, son. Just don't do this again. His bony little arms locked around me like a python. Like, let go. He had never done it again. The thing that was amazing to me at that moment was recognizing how quickly or how powerful kindness and grace and forgiveness can be as opposed to the law of punishment and power. Which is, by the way, I think how a lot of churches operate law, punishment, and power to moderate behavior. Because you know why? Because forgiveness and grace is a little too risky for most of us. 
but this is what God bet the farm on. Why doesn't God show himself? Because love requires love to love back. And so for many of us, I think when, you, when, when you're thinking about this moment, about loving one another, you know, and, and by the way, if you're just thinking about your own little spiritual community bubble, man, you're so missing the mark. This is not, I want you to love just you guys. Because anybody else that doesn't think like you, vote like you, has the same lifestyle as you, dress like you, those guys you can hate. Now, see, I know when I say that, it sounds stupid, correct? You know that that's incorrect, but that you, some of you have had that in your head that this doesn't apply to people outside of spiritual community. It applies to everybody. I recall earlier this year, I went to see a therapist whose specialty was dealing with, uh, wait, let me just give you a disclaimer. I didn't go for myself. I went to see this therapist who specializes in sexual mismanagement issues, all right, helping people through that process, through that out. I really didn't go for myself, guys, all right, just stop. There are some people that had come and, and, and were speaking with me, and I just felt I didn't have... I just didn't know how to help some of these folks that, that were, uh, I was in, in, in conversation and relationship with. So I went to see a guy who was a specialist. This is what he does. And he was giving some clinical things and, and answering them. And, and I was explaining you know, some of my questions. And, and as I began to explain it, uh, you know, uh, one particular person came to mind. And I just, I just broke down and began to weep. I just felt powerless to help this individual who was struggling and was seeking help. And, and, and he reminded me of something I knew from my son. He, he said, you know, Octavio, the, the, the biggest help you can offer somebody is just to love them. Unconditionally love them until they step into a moment of healing. But if they don't have that moment, you have really nothing else to offer them. And I began to realize how often it is with people that most, most folks that we deal with, I mean, I don't know why we, why we do this with, with some people. I don't know why we love to point out people's faults I, some weird, self-righteous, prideful, goofy motivation that we, hey, brother, you're not doing, you know. Like, I, I know there's times we're going to have to have a hard conversation. But let me share with you, I think it should come at the tail end of a, quite a bit of relational collateral being built in. If that person has any doubts that you don't incredibly love them as is where they are, and if they never change, you'll still love them, then you have no business having that conversation with them, honestly. Who would like to do God? Do you understand that even God doesn't have those conversations with us sometimes? Have you noticed? You know what you hear from God is, 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 is that love language and how freeing that has been probably for most of you. To know that you're accepted, chosen, forgiven, and cared for. Where are you at? Love Forgiveness has a way of moderating behavior the way that power and authority and law never do. Never do. Never do. So Jesus gives a, um, this final summation of all of, his, of all of his teachings. Look, you know, you can get information. But if you don't care and love for people, what are you pointing them to? What are we doing if that's not how we treat individuals? What are we doing? Getting information for information's sake? One more Bible study? And look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my students. This was God's plan. This was the method. There's no plan B. 
This is the way that we're supposed to be billboards for hymns or, or, or open readable letters for him. This was the advertisement. Now, I, I, I'm thinking in my head, again, here goes that Brookman Method thing. I think you could have done differently, you know, some sort of dramatic display of your ability. But he chose us to be the evidence that he exists and that he's a good God. And so how, when people see us interact and care for each other, this was supposed to be an attractive, winsome moment for folks to step into that moment with us. Let's go to John chapter 8 for just a second. John chapter 8. Galilee in the north of Israel was viewed the way that culturally America views the south. Anybody here from the south, if you are? Okay. Well, you know, it happens, right? I kind of want to change my language now. Um, Well, I didn't know someone's going to actually be here from the south. Now I don't just say... Love the culture. I went, I went to Atlanta. It was so strange. People were the most polite people. I was, you know, sir and ma'am, people who were older. And it just was weird to me because I was taught, you know, I mean, you just don't go. It just was weird, the dynamic of why people were so polite. And the gallons and gallons of sweet tea I drank out there. And I got to appreciate grits in a whole new way. At any rate, my point in there is one, is that, you know, there's that, that, so that comical sort of caricature, right? That's what the North Galilee was viewed as. They spoke funny. They weren't very bright. Uh, it was a weird area. It wasn't the spiritual epicenter like Jerusalem was. Nobody of spiritual significance or voices for God will come out of Galilee, where Jesus came. And so the religious authorities at the time, people who were informed and educated studied the scriptures where what we call the Old Testament, said, you know, gosh, there's nothing in here about a prophet from Galilee. So it was a very disparaging moment. And it was following that moment, at the end of chapter 7, uh, they each went to their own home, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach him. Okay. So just to picture the temple courts for just a moment, you have a, a campus like a football field squared off, and um, you, know, you can see 60, 70 yards down the four-story you know, gold-covered marble, just gorgeous temple that you cannot go to. If you're anything but Jewish, you are the furthest away. The only person, well, actually, you're not even ahead of you. With you are women. If you're a Jewish woman, you can't go any further. You're the furthest away. If you have any kind of physical setback, you are not allowed to go in further than what women and and Gentiles would go. A little bit further up the chain were men, Jewish men. And a little bit further up were some Levite priests. And then inside past that wall, there's two or three walls and smaller gates. Past that would be where the priests that were serving on schedule. And then once a year, one guy got to go inside the Holy of Holies. That's the setting. I mean, think, think of what's spoken to you year after year after year if you're female or if you're not Jewish or if you have something wrong with a leg. What's spoken to you is that I don't want your company. And this is exactly the opposite of what Jesus' message was, wasn't it? So he sits down, he's teaching people. He sits down, the students stand. So that's the setting. That's kind of the culture he's in. 
3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Did any of you see that uh, the Iranian film, or is it Iraqi? I think it's Iranian film, The Stoning of Soraya Ma'am. It's Iraqi? Yeah. It is horrible, isn't it? It's awful. It, it's based out of a true event. I guess it's about 10-year-olds, the event. It, this spared no... It was gruesome, wasn't it? I mean, just... It's long. I don't know what, how you picture this. You know, it, it's just gruesome. I don't put it any other way. You know, buried up to your waist and then pelted with stones until you die. Your hands are bound behind you. At best, you could try to flinch with your head, but, you, you know... It's just gruesome. And then just seeing the bloody mess of it all over the place. Here's these people who are almost urgently, eagerly seeking, we should kill this woman. And uh, think of the, the tension. There's these students, people who are listening to Jesus speaking. Uh, think of you being caught off guard in that moment. And the tension of people waiting for an answer. And the trap that John says was happening because there was two very distinct schools of thoughts about this and what was supposed to happen and and, and how they were trying to maybe split Jesus' popularity. And, and then you're the woman. You're standing there trying to keep what's left of your dignity, trying to keep whatever, I don't know, whatever you grabbed, a, a, a sheet, a, a toga, I don't know. Some Middle Eastern woman, black hair, dark eyes, olive skin complexion. You're freaked because your death is very possible and eminent. And you're not ignorant of what those stonings look like. And so they're pressing him for an answer and pressing him for an answer. And, and Jesus does something, you know, kind of weird. And, well, it is weird. So they were using this question, verse 6, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So, you know, if you're a Bible person like I am and you're biblically literate, you're kind of maybe seeing this connection between, you know, Exodus where God writes the Ten Commandments with his finger, maybe Jesus in this moment, because in, in your estimation, the, you know, Jesus is God and that's his identity, so you're seeing that connection. I get you. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us. I, I, I'm, I'm the guy that likes to see the space in between the dots. John's connecting dots. I want to see the space in between the dots. What was he writing? And in my mind, I picture everyone, you know, the woman standing there, the people with their, these, these horrible individuals these poor excuses for human beings with their religious togas and turbans and, and demanding that this woman be executed and he maybe have his back toward them and keeping writing. And they're pressing him for an answer and pressing him for an answer. And I want you to understand he doesn't respond on their timetable. And some of the mistakes that we make as people, that someone else's urgency becomes ours and it isn't. That could also be the fact that I don't care about other people's opinions. But what I'm seeing here... <laughs> Have you noticed that when you read the scriptures, Jesus always thinks like you? Like, but if you, do, if you did your strengths and your temperaments, you always see Jesus with the same strengths and temperaments? See, I, the, way, the reason why I think that happens is that if he's perfectly human, he had all the strengths anyways. Okay, so verse 7, when they, the, the tension's building and woman's freaking and disciples are nervous, like, Jesus, give them an answer, say something. Dude, these, are, these, are, these people could make or break your popularity. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And then he stepped down again and continued to write on the ground. Now at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, and the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I, I, I've often wondered, you know, I, I, I see this book, I take it seriously, and I know when to take it literally and when to take it as poetry, when to take it as you know, mystical writings and so But At this moment here, as John's writing this historical account, I'm going to go literal with this. If, he, if all those guys left, the crowd he was teaching left, and so did the 12th, there was just something about this moment that it was just he and this woman now. So Jesus it was riding on the ground. She's standing there thinking, should I leave? Am I safe? What do I do? So Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Pause. Has no one condemned you? And maybe with fearful, trembling, hesitant voice, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now here's what I want to point out about this. There was never a reduction in the absolute standard of purity. It wasn't like, I understand, you get daddy issues. It wasn't like, okay, you know, the guy was scummy, he seduced you. It happens. It was stop this life. But the buckle, I mean, the, 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 being the, the foundation was, I don't condemn you either. See, I think for many of us, we, we don't have those kind of relationships where we really do, by our life and our actions, we, we call and encourage people to the highest level of living. But when they don't make it, and they're not going to because we don't either, that we're fully committed to them anyways. I'm here for the long haul. I am not leaving. I am not stopping. I care for you regardless. And if you never take a healthy step forward, I will still love you. A couple months back, a close friend that, um, oh goodness, I love this person, like family, and um, had a huge blowout. They left the church. And by the way, it's not, it's not the same person from last week. This is number two. So I told Lilia, no, I, um, <laughs> no. We, we couldn't even speak to each other. It was so painful. We had a text once in a while. And we agreed to meet in person. And, 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 and I was going to explain all my actions and why they misunderstood. And, and you know, maybe how they were wrong. I was going to be gentle about it. And, but, you know, I was, they needed to know, you know. And, and so when the person asked me, well, you know, why did you do this? this and, and, and there was just a moment of just, you know, they were processing betrayal. They were processing. Just, it was just horrible. I, it was horrible. I totally screwed up. All I could tell them is that I, I, I didn't mean their harm, that I, I, I love them, and that they, they would please forgive me. And I, I can't tell you that everything's been fixed, but it finally is moving in the right direction to become restorative. You see, sometimes that's what you're left with. You know, you, you, you have to own what you do wrong. It's not always everybody else's fault. 
A month or so after that, they, I got a text message from this individual that says, hey, whenever you pray for me, do you ever, are you ever sad? Because they made some unhealthy choices in their life. And I pointed out, no, because I'm not disappointed. I will always love you. And so I'm never sad for you. I think if you are not a person that will commit in relationships in a way that costs you, that you're willing to have your heart broken, see, this person's able to hurt me and break my heart, but they're not going to disappoint me. I just love them. Then, then there's something that's small and shriveled in your soul. That's just the reality. You may not want to hear that, but that's just how it is. And part of developing a relational skill set is first recognizing, I don't have them. I do this okay, but here's where I fall short. When it really matters, if it's going to hurt me, if it's going to cost, I'm just not able to stay there within the moment. My wife and I, we've had those moments where it, it was just so painful. All we could do was actually write a letter to each other. And, and sometimes in trying to heal that, I just had to be honest. I don't even know how we got here. I don't even know what we're mad about any longer. But I, you know, I, I value you too much to, to live this way. I'm going to close on this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. So Jesus is speaking to a group of people who, by their actions, the culture they've been taught, if I, if I keep up a certain sort of uh, performance, I'm a good person, right? So if I don't murder anybody, I'm pretty good. And Jesus was saying it has a lot less to do with the outside actions as much as it do, does to do with your, um, what's going on on the inside in your soul. And so he says, hey, you've heard it, uh, that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But... I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, Go first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Let me stop here for just a moment. Because yeah, in another part of this story, you know, it, he's speaking to the person who says, I'm a God follower. I go to a moment of connecting with God. All right? Uh, it might be prayer, it might be devotions, it might be reading my Bible, it might be, you know, I'm really enjoying this new, I don't know. If you're having this moment with God and it comes to your memory by God's graciousness that, hey, this guy has something against you. Remember so-and-so? Remember so-and-so? Listen, you can offer your gift. Thanks. I enjoyed the time and devotion. Super. I'm glad that you're reading the Bible. But you know what? This is more important to me, that this relationship be restored. This is how I know that you're imitating my life and actually following my teachings is if you place a, a value on restoring relationships. Because all you're doing at this moment is having an emotional moment and gathering information. And another part of the same book, he says, now if someone has something against you, you know, so there's, a, there's, a, there's, whether it's you with them or them with you, it lays a responsibility on either person. But what I do find interesting about this particular subject, it's speaking to people who call themselves God followers. If you wish to be connected to me and you remember something has somebody against you, go make it right. If, some, if you have something against somebody else, go make it right. We're not going to be able to continue our divine romance here unless this becomes primary to you. And this is where I think some of us, um, who wants to go to those moments, right? 
He wants to be uncomfortable in those moments. All right, let's sum it up real quickly. Relational skill sets, critical. You don't have them, you're just not going to be fully human. You're a follower or not, you might, hey, listen, I'm glad. You're connected to Jesus, I'm happy for you. I really mean that. But here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. The litmus test is, how do people actually view you in your relationships? The second thing is, if you're not a follower of Christ, it, you're still going to miss out on your life skill set and potential because you just don't know how to work with people. Finally, um, the, I think there's some results we have to own. You know, where am I deficient? Where do I have those moments where there's photographs in my relationships where I see that I'm not really that good? I don't like this part of myself. Awesome. Be grateful that you can see that. And we'll be making focused, intentional steps towards reconciling those things. It matters because people matter. It matters because people matter, period. And if people don't matter to you, I'm telling you, you're going to live a very empty, soulless life. So if I have one recommendation to you, uh, Steve's book, we have it on sale here for 20 bucks, no tax. Um, uh, the series will be coming out of some of the writings of Steve, who uh, put this. He's um, uh, the campus pastor up in Pasadena, 11 o'clock service. So let me pray with you, and we'll dismiss, and we have some announcements for you. And Father, thank you for... Uh, Man, jeez, just thank you. Just thank you for restoring sanity and healing to some friendships and relationships that we have and forgiving of our moral crimes and restoring uh, health to us. What I pray, though, for myself and for my family, my friends who are here, that, that you, you help us not get, not to drown in discouragement thinking about all the things that we've done wrong with our friendships and all the things that have, we've not done well, that, that you'd help us use this as a catalyst to, to motivate us to become healthy and develop strong, exquisite skill sets and relationships, that we would value people over our own lives and, and other tools and resources that we may have, that, that, that people, the carriers of your image, have a high value to us, Father. Help us to be those people that do that. And as we go through this series, I pray that you continue to teach me and help me to share with others what I've learned from you. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.